Okay, we're back with uh, Adam Levinson and the ghost of Ed Vidal. I was told there's a surprise for me, and I thought it was uh, Dershowitz, and apparently it's not Dershowitz. It's like anticlimactic. It's someone who's uh, dear to my heart, and uh, I actually I love his wife more because she bakes cookies, and uh, I never had a wife that bake anything for me. So the fact that I got to eat cookies... <laughs> Uh, says a lot about her, Katrina. God bless you. I hope you're listening. But uh, Adam, lay it on me. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about impeachment today, part two, correct? Correct. So I, I, I'd like to brag here that what you've done with this radio station and your your folks that, that uh, participate is that you've brought the American history, the founding generation, the glory of our Constitution and our system. You know, and we've been discussing this for uh, going on a year approximately, rounding. Right, so because tonight's show is so important that we prevailed upon Ed and he's able to join us from New York. So ask him later where he is in New York. But uh, the goal today is to continue impeachment part two. And uh, let me tell you, there are three parts of the conversation, and I want Ed to jump in at any time. That way we get some back and forth. But the three things I envision today, first, I want to give some general observations. And I want to start with the musical and start it with Hamilton. And I think there's actually going to be some uh, some light moments when I when I talk about the reference to late night comedy on uh, Jimmy Jimmy uh, Jimmy Canton. What's his name? Jimmy uh, Fallon. So we'll, we'll oh, Jimmy up, Kimmel. Okay. General observations. The second topic I want to talk about is the drafting history of the Constitution. And the third part is the continuation from last week. Last week was the House manager's trial brief. And these things are online. Anyone can read them online. And I posted about it in part one, part two. So the Democrat House manager is in part two is the, the president's brief. So that'll be the third part of the show is the president's brief continuing from last week. So I, I just gave an intro. Ed, did you want to give a little bit of an intro as well? Well, my introduction is kind of a historical perspective. And it goes back to um, what's been happening in America since around 1900. And the progressive movement, which started with Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt, and it's really bipartisan, has been a rebellion against the American Revolution and its institutions, including the Constitution. The Constitution, which is one of limited government, separation of powers in the federal government, and checks and balances back and forth between the three branches. And this American Revolution was amended by a settlement during the Civil War. So if the slaves were free, they were made citizens. So the progressive movement, starting around 1900, President Woodrow Wilson being the, a leading member of that, uh, Teddy Roosevelt somewhat, has been in rebellion against the American Constitution. And we'll go into that, and we'll see how this is yet another war or battle, skirmish, in that you know, century-long rebellion. So that's, where, that's the historical perspective that I wanted to give it. So you think we're still in a century-long rebellion? Yes, a 120-year-old rebellion against the American Revolution. That is what the progressive movement represents. Well, now it's called Adam's Revolution, no? Well, no, no, no. Not Adams Levinson's revolution. Oh, my God, I just realized Adam Levinson and Adam Schiff. What's going on? No, no, no. Maybe there's a conspiracy. But Schiff is the latest uh, Adam. rebel. That's <laughs> the latest Adam. They're, they're, I say that they are in the same tradition as the Confederates and the Loyalists. 
Okay, explain. So, Matt, let me let me point out that, I, as you know, I don't take positions on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I give yeah. the historical right, right. context. Right. I give the background. Yeah, but tonight, yeah. if Ed's going to take a position, I'll give the counter argument yes, to ahead. a certain extent. So we get some balance for purposes right. of, the, of the show. Yeah. So let me begin with some historical observations from the last week or so. And I think, again, as I pointed out at the beginning, what this show is doing is this show is bringing to life the history, which uh, is jumping out at everybody uh, when Congress talks about it and when the Senate talks about it. And as the debate continues now in the, the Senate trial, we're going to get to see more of this. So let me prove the case about how the founding generation is so important. So I'm going to give some cultural references first to the Hamilton musical, because as listeners know, I'm a big fan of Hamilton. And uh, Hamilton now has lots of good company because of the musical. So uh, there's a statement and there's a song. It's a motif in the musical that history has its eyes on you. And in, in rallies, uh, pro and anti-Trump, you know, this, this notion that history has its eyes on you. And if you're a Democrat, you're saying history has its eyes on the Senate for not doing things correctly. If you're a Republican, your argument is that history has its eyes on the Democrats for not doing things correctly. But I think both parties, Democrats and Republicans, realize the importance of the history, not just going back to the founding generation, but what history will look like in the future when people look back at today. So this is an important debate that's taking place. So that, that's from the musical, History Has Its Eyes on You. Second thing, and you mentioned Adam Schiff, so I wanted to point out that um, Jimmy Kimmel, who was a late-night comedian, and this was a last Wednesday night during his opening monologue, he, he joked that Schiff quoted Hamilton so many times at the beginning of the trial that Schiff was going to get nominated for five Tony Awards. So you know, <laughs> once Hamilton makes it into late-night comedy, right, that tells you that everyone is you know, at least aware of who Hamilton is, which was not always the case, and is aware of the Founding Fathers. And another cultural reference, uh, before we get too political tonight, is... Uh, there have been some that refer to now the founding fathers as the Constitution for the founding fathers, the the the, uh, the Federalist Papers. And last week we talked about, and the prior weeks we talked about how these were these 85 essays that were written by Hamilton, by Madison, and by John Jay. Jay only did five. Hamilton wrote the, the lion's share of them. But the, those essays, which were done to convince the voters of New York, the delegates, to approve the Constitution, and it was an uphill battle. There was no guarantee it was going to get approved in New York. It is a is a wonderful primary source, and this is where I reference Statutes and Stories. So what does the website Statutes and Stories do? It uses these primary sources. It uses letters back and forth between the Founding Fathers, which were cited, by the way, during the debate, during the opening argument and the closing, which was uh, earlier today. So when we talk about these letters, that's exactly what they were doing during the Senate trial, letters between the Founding Fathers and Mothers, uh, diaries and laws and statutes, because that's what I focus on, is this primary history, primary sources. So another thing I want to point out to you, going back to the musical and just laying the groundwork, there's another motif in the musical which is will never be satisfied. Uh, that's sung by the, 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 the wife and the family, the Schuyler family. Uh, you'll never be satisfied talking about Hamilton because he had an affair. And coincidentally, uh, President Trump tweeted, uh, this is uh, having to do with the Democrats will never be satisfied. So that, that notion of we'll never be satisfied come up, came up not just in a tweet, but it also relates back to the musical. Uh, we can talk about more musical in future evenings. You think that Trump did that on purpose? That's an interesting question, and uh, he may well, very well have done that on, on purpose. You mean like Kansas know. City, like Kansas City, Kansas today's tweet? <laughs> oh God! All right, that's sorry. Sorry, that was a rabbit hole. But... We, we can <laughs> we can talk about some of the songs later. I also want to cite to Hakeem Jeffries, who was one of the house managers, and he actually this was a couple nights ago. I'm going to read you what he said. He counted 
the number of times that the Constitution and the founders were cited through the date when he was addressing the Senate. And according to, I'm going to read it to you, he says, the founders of our great republic have been quoted directly or mentioned by name 123 times. And last week we joked about this, that, uh, let's see, Alexander Hamilton, according to Hakeem Jeffries, was cited 48 times, and that's still counting because they continue to be using Hamilton citations. Madison was second place, 38 citations. Washington, 24 times. Adams, eight times. And Jefferson and Franklin, pulling up the rear, didn't have as much love, only four times. So what we do every week on this show is exactly what the Senate was doing for the last two weeks. Now, uh, I do want, at that moment, at this moment in time, it's important that I tell you that I want to know more about this person I've never heard before, and he was cited five times, and his name is James Arodell, and I don't know who James Arodell is, and I want the audience to learn something that everybody else's names come up, at least since the sixth grade have come up in our minds some way or another, but man, I've never heard of James Arodell. Is that- let, me, let me take that real quick, and then I'll get back to some of the references to give more groundwork. So James Aradell, and you're right, he was cited. Most Americans have never heard of him. He was one of the founders, and he was a delegate from North Carolina. And North Carolina was one of the larger states. Virginia was the largest. New York is big. Massachusetts is big. And North Carolina is also a sizable state. And at the, they, they cited him because he said something famous at the North Carolina Ratification Convention. And by the way, I didn't set this up with Manny, so I had no idea he was going to ask about it. But I also follow James Iredell. So during, remember, it had to be approved the Constitution through nine of the 13 former colonies, these new states. Nine of them had to approve the Constitution. And one of the great ways of understanding what the Constitution means and what was intended, which is the intent of the founders, the intent of the framers, is to look at the, the Federalist Papers, to look at the drafting history, which we'll talk about tonight, which are Madison's notes of how they wrote the Constitution. And everybody remembers it was starting in May of 1787 through middle of September of 1787 is when they drafted it. But it had to get ratified. So it went to each of the states except for Rhode Island, which is a whole different story. And they debated it at each of the states. So during the, the ratification convention, which was probably 1788, and in fact almost had to be, 1788 in North Carolina, Uradell said the following. So he says, and you may not like the statement, but then he later become by he became an associate justice of the Supreme Court. So he was a founder who helped write the Constitution, helped sell people on the Constitution in North Carolina where he was from, and then was appointed by probably Washington, I'd have to verify, to become a justice, not the chief justice, but an associate justice of the Supreme Court. And this is one of the statements he made at the North Carolina Ratification Convention. He said that impeachment should be made for harm, quote, arising from acts of great injury to the community. So the Democrats will cite Iredell and do cite Iredell for the statement that nowhere does he say uh, felonies that are crimes, that are statutory crimes, that, uh, that have a criminal sanction. Again, the quote was arising from acts of great injury to the community. So okay, the but, but who, who was injured here? No one. Nobody was injured. Uh, oh, uh, the community being Joe Biden, is he a community? <laughs> he was injured? See, there's no injury. That's the thing. That's the case I thought you were going to say that James Aradell, actual statement that was used by the House managers, actually favored the president's counsel or the president's position because there was no injury. Uh, Ukraine wasn't injured. The United States community wasn't injured. And the president might have injured himself by putting his foot in his mouth in the conversation, but who really injured 
uh, the community were the three rats who disclosed confidential information on a whistleblower complaint. That's all I got to say about so, Jim. You're using the other argument, and this gets to the point that the Constitution, and Ed can chime in, the Constitution is a four-page document. It's, it's, a de- it's not detailed. It's a framework. Right. So it's up to the, the judges and, by the way, Congress and the other branches to flesh out the Constitution through the system of checks and balances. And that's why, you know, when they're going through the trial, they're citing to the founders who were in the position of knowing what they intended. But sometimes the language is vague and it's subject to interpretation. And your argument, Manny, is that when Iridell says at the North Carolina Convention, acts of great injury to the community, you don't think there was enough of a great injury to the community. I Obviously, don't think there was any. I don't think there was any injury to the community other than the rhetoric between but, us all. But, but, but back up. If you look at the complaint from the House, the Constitution says that the president may be impeached for treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. The, the House did not allege that any of those things had occurred. So regardless of the commentary by Aradell or anybody else, the Constitution says this is what it takes to impeach somebody, whether it's a judge or, or the president or the vice president. So the House itself in its, in its complaint did not plead that the, the crime, the events that would re- uh, permit impeachment had occurred. Instead, they came up with abuse of law, I'm sorry, abuse of power, which is not really uh, an Anglo-American legal term. It, I've seen it used with uh, French and continental lawyers, abuse of power. Uh, and second, they came up with, uh, what is it, uh, obstruction of Congress, not obstruction of justice, obstruction of Congress, which may be perceived as part of the everyday give and take between the three branches. You know, the, the Congress wants some documents, the president says executive privilege, that goes back to Washington. So the first point is that uh, the House did not even allege what was needed in order to impeach. And then second, as many pointed out, the great harm to the community didn't occur. I mean, the America was not hurt. Even Ukraine was not hurt uh, by, what, you know, even if, if, even if uh, Trump was acting with uh, some uh, Malice. personal motives. It's still, you know, the, well, the first question was, is it okay if the president acts with public motives and private motives? And the answer given was, you know, sometimes it can have mixed motives. But the, the bottom line was that the United States was not harmed. Ukraine was not harmed because they, in fact, got better weapons, weapons that were more lethal than what Obama had been providing. But, but the, the overbearing argument here is what I started with, which is this historical rebellion by progressives, which are now controlling Congress, uh, against the Constitution. And the American Constitution was based on ideas from Charles Montesquieu and his spirit of the laws. And what he said was, let's try splitting up the government into the three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial, and then they will uh, check and balance each other. That's what Madison wanted. In fact, Madison went further, and he divided the legislative branch into the Senate, which is like the British House of Lords uh, or the Roman Senate, and then the House of Representatives, which is like the British House of Commons, which the Romans didn't have one. So Madison created this complicated three-branch system. One of the branches had two branches itself, and that is a constitutional republic. What the 
have been trying to do is create a single government, a government that is not subject to checks and balances, that is not subject to the separation of powers. And that is what the Democrats were trying to do with this impeachment, because the impeachment would have fundamentally transformed America from a constitutional republic with separation of powers and checks and balances and uh, Charles Montesquieu into a parliamentary republic where the executive serves at the pleasure of the legislature. And that's what you have in England. It's not a republic. Yeah, yeah, a vote of no confidence and you kick the guy out. In England, if if the prime minister is the chief executive, if he loses the confidence, he doesn't have to do high crimes or misdemeanors. If he loses the confidence for whatever reason of parliament, he has to step out. And that's what Theresa May had to do. And before that, David Cameron, who lost the uh, Brexit vote. Same thing in Germany. That's a republic. If the prime minister, the chancellor, loses the confidence of the majority of the members of the legislature, she has to resign. Same thing in Israel. Same thing in Italy. Uh, In Spain, it's a, a, a kingdom with a parliamentary representation. So in those countries... The president, the the chief executive, the executive branch serves at the pleasure of the legislature. Okay, so now we got to give the floor back to Adam so we can get back to. Go ahead. So, Adam, what? You perfectly teed up Madison for me. So you, you mentioned Madison's proposal with checks and balances between a, yep. a Senate and the House and the President and the, right. the, the legislature is Article 2, the Judiciary is Article 3. I'm sorry, the legislature is Article yeah, 1, the President one, yeah. is Article 2, and the, yep. uh, the, the, the courts are Article 3. So you, you, you began to touch on the drafting history, so I wanted to pick up with that. And I also wanted to respond, not because I'm taking any positions, but just to give both sides of the sure, conversation. Sure. So, so you're asking the question, and Manny was making the point that Manny doesn't think there was any great harm to the community, which is the or great injury to the community, which was the Iridel quote. So right. let me just give you the flip side of the argument. So Adam Schiff was arguing, and I'm not saying that I'm Adam Schiff. We're yeah, thoroughly okay. always agreeing with Adam Schiff. But Adam Schiff's position, among the harm that the Democrats were pointing to, was that when the aid was put on hold and the Russians find out about it, when it's discussed on open telephones and you better believe the Russians knew mm-hmm. that the aid was paused. It creates distance. It creates separation. It creates um, an obstacle to that tight al- al- you know, alliance that you want to see. That way Russia doesn't further its meddling and doesn't cut alliances the, 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 the alliance of the, of the, the Western European nations, oh, America, God. Britain, Germany, etc., uh, standing with Ukraine against territorial expansion by Russia. So well, first of all, is it creates daylight between us and Ukraine. It relates to the confidence of, of the allies that America is going to stand behind another democracy who is at war, who is being challenged, and you know it's a tenuous situation in the, the eastern areas in Ukraine, the Donbass area, etc., mm-hmm. where people are dying. Right. Another argument is with regard to the harm that uh, when um, when you when you do diplomacy, and we can really do this another night, and I'm not taking a position, but when you do diplomacy, not through official channels which are developed uh, so that there's oversight by Congress, but when you do it on the side, uh, that's an imperfect way to do it, and that's a way of uh, not That's been done by presidents in Washington. Right. So we could get into some of the Schiff's arguments, but his view is that uh, when you don't follow the law and when you do it to benefit, and that gets to the question, again, without me taking a position, about Mm -hmm. using the power of the chief executive to target an adversary, a political rival, that the argument is undermined 
undermines the, the underlying sanctity of a democracy. Yeah, but in this case, but, but time out. In this right? case, it's in this case, it's just happenstance because there's a treaty to root out corruption between Ukraine and right. the United States signed by a signed by Slick Willie by Slicky. So even if Trump can't articulate it because he didn't listen to the guy who told him, "Hey, man, just say there's a treaty for Christ's sake." It's happenstance that Biden yeah. is running for president. Happenstance. It's still corruption, and it could apply to what's going to come out now, which is when Trump's in his second term, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out about how many Americans had their hands in the cookie jar in the yep. Ukraine. And therefore, Trump might have already been privy to, privy to that and either well, didn't Not cho- only the corruption, but also President Obama did not provide lethal aid to Ukraine and did not object when, when Russia uh, uh, took over the Crimea. So there's a whole history. If you're going to impeach Trump for this, then you got to go back and impeach Obama for what he did. What he failed to do. Daylight. Well, anyway, continue, Adam, because that's, go ahead. Yeah. that's just a, a huge rabbit hole, and that'll come out later. Yeah. I'm agreeing with you both that more will come out, and that's another yeah. quick segue. Then I'll get into the drafting history. And we're not going to resolve this tonight, but we're for our viewers to listen to what the arguments are. Yeah. Right. So uh, the, the point I wanted to make, and it's interesting, I don't want to talk too much about Bolton, but I'm, I'm trying to make the point about Hamilton and the founder, mm-hmm. you know, coming back from 230 years ago in our history into a discussion today that made it onto late-night comedy, right? So uh, there's a book, which is Bolton's book coming out, and the title of the book was not chosen by accident. One of the songs in the Hamilton... One of the songs in the Hamilton musical, the context is, and I'm now totally off on the side, uh, is mm-hmm. the, the compromise that was reached to choose Washington, D.C., uh, to right. move the capital from New York 10 years to Philadelphia and then to build Washington, D.C. So there was a compromise that was reached, and part of that compromise was Washington, the city will be created close to Washington, the president, and Virginia, which was the largest state, and uh, Hamilton will get his financial program through, which involved uh, paying mm-hmm. off the debt and paying off pensions and restoring the credit. So that was the major compromise. So the way that Lin-Manuel, in a masterful way, ties this into the musical is that Burr, who is the anti-character, right, he's the enemy of Hamilton for purposes of the the musical, he's the rival of Hamilton, wasn't in the room where it happened. In other words, the room where that decision was made between Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison, the room where it happened. So there's a thought. Was that at the Francis Tavern? Um, It was, I think, Simpson's house. And they asked okay. me about it another night, because there's a famous okay. scene. We only know Jefferson's part of the story. We don't know okay. Hamilton, because he died. So we only know Jefferson's take. So they asked me about it another night. But long story short, okay. that is a song. It's one of the popular themes of the musicals, The yeah. Room Where It Happened. And it's Burr who's saying, I wish I was in the room. How do I get in the room where it happened? Mm-hmm. So guess, lo and behold, what is the name of the book that uh, will be coming out in April, I understand, by Bolton? And the quick answer is the title of his book, I don't make this up, is The Room Where It Happened. <laughs> yeah. The name of the song is The the name of the song is The Room Where It Happens, but the book is The Room Where It Happened. So that's just an interesting historical reference. Yep. But I can move on unless you have any questions. No, oh, yeah, uh, it's it's going to mean absolutely think, nothing. Uh, Bolton's uh, book will be turned into a musical. The <laughs> <laughs> mustache and all. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the that's, that's a satire of the whole thing. Oh, my God. Bolton. <laughs> Not every day you can take popular culture and you can make these references to the history Absolutely. and then to the news. So it's, just, it's fascinating what's going on from a historical perspective. So I wanted mm-hmm. to go back now, and, and Ed mentioned Madison and the drafting. Mm-hmm. So let me give more background. There were, and we've talked about this on prior nights, there were three plans. The, 
Virginia plan was introduced by Edmund Randolph. And Randolph was actually written by Madison, but he gave it to Randolph, who was the head of the Virginia delegation. Randolph, at various times, was the governor of Virginia, and uh, he was also Washington's attorney at different times. So he introduces the Virginia plan, and a lot of the historians credit Madison and the Virginians for having a plan. They had the initiative. They had the, mm -hmm. the proposal, and that set the, the groundwork for debates because it was their proposal that had momentum. There was a second plan, and we'll talk about what was in the Virginia plan. The second plan was the New Jersey plan. So what was the Virginia plan before we do New Jersey? Virginia is the largest state, and of course, it was Ed who mentioned this, the Virginia plan is that each of the states uh, would have, would, the representation in the new federal Congress would be based on population. So it's the big state plan, it's the Virginia plan, right? And then the New Jersey plan is no, uh, do it the way we did it under the articles, that each state, big or small, gets one vote, whereas the Virginia plan was based on population, and then the result the compromise, and there were many compromises, the, the big master compromise was the Connecticut compromise. And Connecticut took the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan, big and small, combined them together. That's how you get the Senate, which is equal representation, two state, you know, two uh, senators per, per state. So that's basically a version of the New Jersey plan. And the Virginia plan is based on population. That's how you get the House. So that's the merger of those two is the Connecticut plan. So yep. but people don't realize that Hamilton also had a plan, and they basically ignored a lot of Hamilton's plan. But I want to give you what the three plans said with regard to impeachment. So let me read this to you. So the Virginia plan provided for removal of officers upon impeachment and conviction by the federal judiciary. Well, okay, so the Virginia plan is basically the federal judges would do it under the Virginia plan originally proposed by Madison. The New Jersey plan used the, the Congress, and they anticipated only one House, but used the, the House of Congress mm -hmm. for removal, but the conviction would be done by state governors. So imagine okay. if the governors had the vote on whether or not to impeach somebody who'd been, you know, who'd convict somebody who'd been impeached by the Congress. So that was the New Jersey plan. But here comes Alexander Hamilton with his own plan, which he based it on the British legal system. And Hamilton, and Ed, you sort of mentioned this, Hamilton was a big fan of the British system because he liked mm -hmm. the checks and balances and he likes the liberties that England right. had led the way with a lot of the liberties. It's, it's, I'll be careful describing it, but the liberal democracy, if you will, of, of system of uh, the evolution that had taken place, and we talked about this in other nights. So what is the Hamilton plan for impeachment? And, and some, you know, some of this is only a sentence or two. These are not very detailed. These are outlines. So the Hamilton plan was introduced as own plan based on the British legal system where the governor, senators, and other officials could be removed for, quote, mal and corrupt conduct after being charged by the lower house and tried in the upper house. So it is yeah. Hamilton that gives us this idea of the house introduces it and impeaches you and then the Senate tries it. That came from Hamilton, yeah. which is yeah. one of the reasons that he was cited so many times, not just Hamilton, but the others in the, in the debates. Uh, so I also want to skip ahead, by the way, that what are the, the precedents we can look at? And the answer is there have only been a handful. You can count them on less than a whole hand, the times that a president has, uh, that this has come up before. So that's what we look at the founders, we look at it, the precedents. So we have, we have a, a good number of, of judges who've been impeached, right. but only a handful, three presidents who've, who've come this far. So let me give you the example of the first impeachment. And it was mentioned in some of the arguments. So the first impeachment was actually a judge, and it was in 1803. And the judge who was removed, his name was John Pinkering, and he was on the bench in 1803. He's charged with impeachment. So what are the offenses? Because these are the guys who wrote the Constitution. If this impeachment takes place in 1803, what did they think impeachment meant? So in 1803, Judge Pinkering 
comes before an impeachment charge, and the, the charge, among others, was, and this is in the charging document, that he was a man of loose morals and intemperate habits who at least once was drunk on the job. So that's what they're impeaching or trying to impeach a judge for in 1803. So let me ask you, what is Dershowitz's response? And, and it's sort of a tough question. But uh, here you're dealing with a judge, not a president, and the Democrats point out that they're impeaching a judge for loose morals and being drunk, which obviously is not a crime for your morals and your right. conduct as a judge being drunk. So what is Dershowitz's response to distinguish and say, no, don't pay attention to pinkering uh, because that's not a good precedent? What's Dershowitz's argument? You got me. That there was no crime. So his argument, right, no crime. So the way he distinguishes between a president under Article 2 versus a judge in Article 3... Is the election... A president is elected and a judge isn't. They're very good, Manning. So exactly right. So Berdershowitz argues that judges get to stay for good behavior, whereas a president gets elected every four years. So that's an excellent observation. So to Dershowitz, you can't use judicial impeachments as the authority for whether or not you can impeach a president for something which is was, not crime-like. Was is the Pickering removed? Was Pickering I have to removed? check on that. I, I do not know whether or not they voted to remove him. I think they okay. did, but I'm, don't, don't hold me to it. Okay. So, so that's the distinction. The judges in the federal system are there mm-hmm. for life unless they're re- removed, and that gets to what's good behavior, good and behavior, then up right. to the Senate to decide what's good behavior. So yep. let me also give you another example of an impeachment. So the first president to be impeached, and remember, impeachment just means you go with charges mm-hmm. in the House. It doesn't right. mean that you're removed by the Senate. So the first presidential impeachment, we talked about this last week, was a Democrat. This is uh, Johnson. And Johnson, this is after the Civil War, he was Lincoln's vice president and he becomes president. And there were 11 articles that were brought against Johnson, President Johnson, including, let me tell you what some of the articles were, there were 11, including an article that accused him of using a loud voice, that's a quote, using a loud voice to make intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues against the Congress, the legislative branch. So Democrats point to that to say, when they brought impeachment charges against Andrew Johnson, using a loud voice and using an intemperate and inflammatory, scandalous harangue, <laughs> that's browbeating t- Congress. Yeah, that's totally Trump. Crime, <laughs> that's totally Trump. So what, what is the response, if you will, that the Republicans are saying, don't pay attention to the Johnson example of those articles, because what happened in the Johnson impeachment? Uh, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't convicted in the Senate. By a vote of one. So let me get right. more details. So Republican, and, and I think both sides point to this as an example of uh, you know, a heroic person who stands up and does the right thing. So Republican Senator James Grimes, and remember, it's the Democrats that are trying to remove, uh, actually, it's Democrats and Republicans that are trying to remove uh, President Johnson. So Republican James Grimes of Iowa was among those who voted to save the president, and it came down to one vote, because uh, he argued that Congress had overreached and it was okay for the president to to not be impeached here. Let me give you a quote. Johnson from, I'm sorry, James Grimes from Iowa, the quote is, I cannot agree to destroy the harmonious working of the Constitution. This was your argument, Ed and Manning. So, Senator Grimes, I cannot agree to destroy the harmonious working of the Constitution, dot, 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 for the sake of getting rid of an unacceptable president. So here you have the precedent, at least from James Grimes of Iowa, the senator in 1866 time frame, that I'm not going to vote to remove him just because he's an unacceptable president, because I don't want to destroy the harmonious working of the Constitution. Republicans cite to that example. Now, yep. I mean, um, 
the backstory after the country had gone through the trauma of Lincoln's assassination, how could they have been so petty to go after Johnson, who's trying to heal the nation? Well, Johnson was a Democrat, and the Republicans in Congress <laughs> were angry at him because he was too conciliatory towards the Southern Democrat Confederates. And Who? Lincoln wanted that. Lincoln wanted to reconcile the nation. That's why he picked a Democrat for his second vice president. So the, the Republican, radical Republicans in the Senate, and especially in the House, were very upset because Johnson was too soft on those rebellious states. Southern Democrat, rebellious states. And the Southern Democrats. Who had, who had now lost a war, therefore they should have, yeah. they had he no was, rights. He thought he was too, too, too soft. There were also issues of how to treat the freedmen, and that's why the you know, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed, uh, which don't require presidential approval. So this was a real fight. There were radical Republicans that really wanted to punish the Southern Democrats for seceding and who wanted to give the slaves 40 acres and a mule. And uh, Johnson was uh, stopping all that. So that's, that was the fight. I, I agree. That's a good description of the, the background. And the irony that Lincoln's survivor, Lincoln's successor, yep. uh, did not believe in what Lincoln believed in. So right, that's a historical right. irony. But Lincoln but picked him for that. Lincoln picked him because yeah. he knew he had a, a difficult election, a re-election, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. he wanted to build bridges, and uh, that was yeah. a way of making sure that, that he gets more support. He was reaching out for purposes of his re-election campaign. So yeah. let me give you a little bit more detail on that 1866 time frame impeachment of Johnson. So I, I cited you from James Grimes, who was the Republican senator who crossed parties and voted not to impeach, and I want to give you the argument and a quote from one of the lawyers who was representing President Johnson. So... I mentioned to you that Grimes was one of seven Republicans who broke ranks with their party and voted with the 12 Democrats to acquit in the Senate. And Dershowitz cites to this legal argument by Benjamin Curtis. So who is Benjamin Curtis? And the answer is Benjamin Curtis was one of the attorneys who represented President Andrew Johnson. So what did Curtis argue that Grimes agreed with? So Curtis argued, and I'm going to try to quote it, Curtis argued that mere abuse of power wasn't enough for a president to be impeached. Have you heard that before? Yep. So that argument that Grimes made, based upon Curtis, who was the attorney representing Johnson, was that mere abuse of power wasn't enough. Now, I would ask the question, how compelling is that precedent? Because it came down to a vote of one. It was very close. And there's a history professor from Yale, and this is Bruce Ackerman. And he argues that some of these seven Republicans didn't vote on the merits. There was, uh, and, and Manny, you, you were talking about this earlier in the last hour, uh, there was uh, some shenanigans going on, and the specific information is that at the last minute, some of the changes in votes were the result of bribery. So let me see if I can get the, the differences here. That it wasn't because of Curtis's arguments that some of the Republicans switched. It was because of naked bribery that was taking place, according to some of the historians looking at the, the details. So, again, you can look at these precedents, but the precedents are subject to interpretation, and that's why we have lawyers to try to flesh it all together, and then people come down based upon you know, how they want to interpret the precedents and the meaning of the different precedents. I suggest we we used uh, small business owners instead of lawyers, and this problem wouldn't have happened. But anyway, that's another point. <clears throat> but see, the, the problem is that if it's just <clears throat> abuse of power or disagreement with policy, which was the case in the, in the uh, Johnson impeachment. The radical Republicans led by Thaddeus Stevens in the House were very upset that Johnson was giving 
the Southern Democrats very lenient treatment and was not helping the freedmen. So, but if, if the House and the, if the legislature can remove the executive because of something other than treason, uh, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors, then you have a parliamentary system. That's, that's, without, that's what, without a uh, doubt. They should have... You have a parliamentary system where you can have a vote of, vote of no confidence. And okay, say, but... but that, using the law, you're, you know, we don't like the way you're doing this. Uh, why didn't so they, in the Constitution, it. why didn't they actually say, instead of uh, the two-thirds count in the Senate, why didn't they also impose that on the House, not in terms of number, but just using the word impeachment could not be partisan? In other words, someone... They, from, yeah, they never say that. The Constitution didn't even want to think about partisanship. They were that's hoping what the that two-thirds they, requirement does. Yeah. And then you're right, the two-thirds requirement kills partisanship, or tries to overcome partisanship. So, yeah. there we are. So we always imagine having almost uh, 50-50 political system, so the, the Constitution doesn't really work if we, by some stupid reason, we create a multi-party system. Right. So what we have is a two-party system, and if you look at America, it's always the third parties are only spoilers for the most part. As they would be, as they are in Europe, uh, their parties are no, just. No, in Europe they have proportional representation, so you have multiple parties. Like, look at the German parliament. So many, what, what you? The Italian parliament. Yeah. What, what I think Manny did, and I'm complimenting him, is he really put his finger on what part of the debate is. And part of the debate, we know what treason is. We know what. Um, you know, bribery is, because those are usually defined terms. There's no dispute over what those two are as a general matter. But the big question is, what is a high crime and misdemeanor? That's one of the battlegrounds in the legal arguments in the briefs. And if we have time today, I'm going to cite from the, the Trump brief that was submitted, and it's a fairly detailed document, and I have links to it. And this is where I mentioned, go to the, I always like to tell people every week, you can listen to the podcasts on WSQF, Statutes and Stories section of the radio station, or you can go to statutesandstories.com, and you can do both, and you can can read the primary sources and the links and the pictures. So you, you got all kinds of ways of learning and uh, delving into the details. So let me give one more example from the Virginia ratifying convention, and then I want to get into the into the drafting history because you can see how the, the term changed. It didn't always say when they were drafting it. It didn't always say high crimes and misdemeanors. It started differently, and it evolved during those three months. So we'll get into some of the drafting history. But I wanted to mention the Virginia Ratifying Convention. And, uh, you know, the Virginians played a very important role in the early government because Rutledge was a – I'm sorry, not Rutledge. Uh, let's see, Madison was from Virginia. Randolph was from Virginia. Madison was from Virginia. So you have a lot of pa powerful, important Virginians. So what, what is some of the debate that took place? And Mason was from Virginia, and we talked about Mason a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about the anti-federalists, and Mason plays an important role. A lot of Virginians, as I'm going to show you, play a very big role in drafting the impeachment clause. So what happened at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, and it was a, you know, when I give you a select example, there, this went on for days and days. It may have been up to a month. I'm not sure how many days it was. So you, could, you can always cherry-pick examples. Uh, so it's important that you understand the, the context of an example. But the, the example I'm going to give you from Edmund Randolph, who was a very important Virginian, explicitly connected impeachment to foreign money, because they were really concerned, um, you know, that Britain, uh, you know, might try to undermine, because they had just been to war with Britain less than 10 years ago. The, uh, the French were worried about the French, the Spanish, and foreign entanglements. So, so what, what is the point? During 
during the Virginia ratifying convention, Randolph is worried about impeachments and how foreign money might influence elections, because this is an experiment. They're doing something that hadn't been done, in America at least, and not until you go back to the Greeks and the Romans, So, especially the Greeks. So this is what Randolph says. He says, the president, quotes, may be impeached if it's discovered that he is receiving emoluments from foreign powers. So the Democrats will point to this to say, well, receiving emoluments is not a crime unless there is a statute that makes it a crime. And Republicans would say uh, that, well, if you're receiving emoluments, all you need to do is pass a crime to make it a crime, pass a statute, and then you can impeach them if you have a statute. But I'm making the observation that as far back as that Virginia ratifying convention, 1788, there was concern by some of the founders that the president could be impeached for various reasons. And here I'm giving the example of, quote, receiving emoluments from foreign powers. And then we pointed out that George Washington, in his uh, farewell address, we talked an entire hour on this uh, months ago, you know, Washington was very worried about, quote, the insidious wiles of foreign influence. So this was an issue of concern about foreign influence or meddling in American elections. And I don't know if that's a call on my end or yours, Ed, but I'm just going to ignore it. Yeah, well, we got 15 minutes, so we got to ignore all calls. <laughs> um, hello? Hello? Uh, I, I can hear you. Let me uh, try to fix the phone. So, Ed, uh, tell me the emotional side of uh, rejoining me tonight, and uh, how did this transpire? You went to New York. You're now uh, a, an official New York entitlement um, foster, uh, how, how would I say it, uh, your caregiver, because uh, I'm sure you're you're doing baby uh, right now. You're taking a care. Bit. Yeah, a little bit. Uh huh. And what? Uh, first of all, uh, how cold is it up there? Statuesandstories.com. How can I help you? <laughs> so, uh, Manny, can you hear me? Yes, I can. So you lost what it. Happened? I, you I lost it. I got a call that came in, so the, the call disconnected us. But can you hear me now? On the Concrete Conservatives, that is a conspiracy. Adam Schiff was I, calling I you. To, I, I think Ed is calling us on the line, so hold on. I'm going to try to accept. Okay. Meaning we'll lose the call here. Ed Vidal, who I missed greatly on my show, has now joined forces with Adam, and now we're only going to have Ed on the statues and stories, can you? Who would have thunk that? That is a conspiracy. Um, well, this is a special appearance. I'm in New York for American Lawyer Media's Legal Week. Uh, we're here. I'm here with uh, the CEO of the company that I work with, iCrowd Newswire. We have a joint venture, and we uh, produce legal newswire for uh, law. See what I mean? Adam Schiff is having none of it. This is just like bad radio is what this is. Statues and Stories, Ed Vidal Show. How can I help you? Hey, so I think we're back, and I'm not going to try to get Ed because it, uh, I'm ineffectively doing it. But can you hear me at least? Yes, I can. All right, so maybe um, if we want to go a little bit longer tonight, then I'll hang up and Ed can call in if, if you want. No, no, no. Leave Ed alone. He's, you know, he's broken my heart. No, no, no. All right. So let, let me just continue a little bit of the drafting history. 
and then if uh, if we finish, if Ed wants to call, I'll drop the line. So let me give a little bit of the drafting history. We only have about 10 minutes. Right. So uh, let's start with May 25th, 1787, is when they first met in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention. And uh, as I mentioned, Randolph was the Virginia governor at the time, and he introduced the Virginia plan written by Madison, which was the starting point for the discussions. So Mason, who we mentioned a couple weeks ago, Mason is one of the richest planters. He's a slave owner in Virginia, so George Mason. So he uh, was concerned, and he was the first delegate to argue that the government needed a check on executive power. So the quote from Mason at the beginning was, we need some mode of displacing an unfit magistrate. And back then they referred to an executive as a magistrate. So that's uh, the very beginning of the conversation. And the first time you hear discussion about impeachment is on June 2nd. So this material is available online on June 2nd of 1787. Uh, there's a discussion, discussion about making the executive a mere creature of the legislature, that if you can remove him too easily, and this was Ed's point earlier, if you can remove a president too easily, he becomes a mere creature of the legislature. And after a short debate, the convention agrees on the language I mentioned earlier of the Virginia plan. So June 2nd, they, they lead off with the Virginia plan. They're going to use the Virginia proposal where the executive would be removed for impeachment and conviction of malpractice or neglect of duty. So that's broad language to start. Malpractice or neglect of duty is how they started on June 2nd time frame because that was what the Virginia plan said. And remember, the Virginia plan was the, the federal judiciary. The Supreme Court would be the one that would convict you of malpractice or neglect of duty. So that stayed for over a month. They left it on the side burner until July 20th. So this is a month and a half later. Mason, Madison, and Randolph all come up to, dis to, to talk about impeachment on July 20th when Charles Pinckney of South Carolina and Grosvenor Morris, and I'll point out to you that the Republicans cited many times to Morris because of what I'm going to tell you what Morris said. So Morris was from Pennsylvania, and he moved to strike the impeachment provision. Morris and Pinckney did not, did not want the president to be removed. And, Manny, you're going to agree with this. Morris and Pinckney said, this is a quote, if the president should be reelected, it will be sufficient proof of his innocence. Morris argued, impeachment will render the executive department on those who are to impeach, that they'll be dependent on those who are to impeach. So the argument that Morris and Pinckney were making is you don't need impeachment because you have re-elections every four years. So does that make sense so far? That's July 20th. Absolutely. What did they decide to do? And this gets into the drafting history. And here Mason speaks up and says, no, I disagree with you, Morris and Pinckney. So Mason says, and Democrats cite to this sentence, Mason says, shall any man be above justice? Question. That is what Mason says. Should any man be above justice? He continues. Shall that man be above it who can commit the most extreme injustice? So that's Mason saying, no, we need him impeachment provision. A presidential candidate who might bribe electors to gain the presidency Mason suggested, shall be, this is a quote, shall, shall the man who has practiced corruption and by the means procured appointments in the first instance be suffered to escape punishment by repeating his guilt. That's what Mason is saying on July 20th. So what happens, Madison chimes in, and Madison says that the Constitution does need a provision for impeachment for, this is the quote, for defending the community against incapacity, negligence, or, and this isn't a word we use today, or perfidy, P-E-R-F-I-D-Y, of the chief magistrate. And remember, the chief magistrate is the president. So Madison is saying, no, we need a provision for incapacity, negligence, or perfidy of the chief magistrate. And the audience seems to know what perfidy means, because I don't know. Per Okay, so perfidy is basically, and, and we could debate what perfidy means, but uh, 
and, and I'll, I'll give some examples, but dishonesty, perfidy is dishonesty. So waiting to vote him out of office in a general election wasn't good enough for Madison. So Madison says, quote, he might pervert his administration into a scheme of peculation, and peculation is not a word we use today, but Madison is saying if we don't have the ability to impeach the president, he might pervert his administration into a scheme of peculation. Peculation, what is that? That's embezzlement or oppression. So that's what Madison is saying. He could do percolation or oppression. Madison warned he might betray his trust to foreign powers. So Democrats point to that quote by Madison that he could betray his trust, breach of trust, in other words, for foreign powers. So now Randolph chimes in. This is July 20th, and I invite people Read the transcript if you want to see the debate that took place over that summer in 1797. So Randolph joins the conversation, and he agrees with Madison. He says the executive, quote, will have great opportunities for abusing his powers. Democrats now cite to Randolph because Randolph says great opportunities for abusing power, he warned, particularly in a time of war when the military force and in some respects the public money will be in his hands. That was the quote from Randolph. So the delegates voted, and the question was, remember, this was the, the motion by Morris and Pinckney on July 20th to remove, to strike the impeachment clause, and the states would vote as a state. They voted 8-2 to two to make the executive removable by impeachment. So they kept the impeachment provision on July 20th, but they hadn't yet finalized what the language would be. So that's an important date, July 20th. So let's skip ahead now to September 4th, and we only have a couple more minutes. So September 4th, the delegates hadn't yet resolved the toughest question, which is what exactly will be an impeachable offense? Because at this point, they were still using the Virginia plan, which was malpractice or neglect of duty. So what do they do on, the, on September 4th? This is towards the end of the convention. The Committee on Postponed Matters, because they kicked the bucket. The Committee on Postponed Matters considers the language of impeachment. And here you have Mason again, who's coming up with some ideas. And Mason suggests this is, I'm skipping ahead to, no, to September 8th. Mason is worried about an out-of-control president. Remember, Mason is a guy that doesn't like a strong federal government. So Mason proposes adding maladministration. To, to not just malpractice or neglect of duty, Mason proposes maladministration as a third ground for impeachment. And such a change, by the way, was already in six of the state constitutions used the word maladministration. So this comes up for a decision. Mason is saying add to the other provisions maladministration. And again, as I said, Virginia and six other states had maladministration as a basis for impeachment. And Madison pipes up and objects. And this is what the Republicans are citing to. Madison says, so this is a quote, so vague a term will be equivalent to a tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. So Republicans cited to this, so vague a term, so Madison did not want to use the word maladministration, and they agreed with him not to use maladministration, so Mason offered a substitute. What Mason said, all right, if you're not going to use maladministration, Mason supposes and proposes to use the phrase, other high crimes and misdemeanors against the state. So that's how you got that language proposed by Mason, who wanted maladministration. Mason is objected to by Madison, who wants it, that's too vague, maladministration. So that's how Mason proposed is all their high crimes and misdemeanors, and then they take another vote, and Mason's amendment was accepted using high crimes and misdemeanors when he'd originally proposed maladministration. Now they're going to use high crimes and misdemeanors. That vote took place on, on September 8th. They voted 8 to 3, and they didn't use the word against the state. They changed it to say against the United States. So that's a little bit of the background about how that term changed, how that phrase changed 
on how we got the current language. And um, I'm going to drop the line because I have a long drive ahead of me. I have to drive back home, and I'm doing this from the car. But uh, if Ed is able to call, then I invite him to do it. And, and maybe we'll continue the conversation on another night. But as always, it's a pleasure speaking to everybody and just teeing up some of the history and bringing it to life as we read about it in the news. Okay, now one question. is Why is it we never talk about the, the nuance or the the minor uh, definition for the misdemeanor. What? Why did they? If it's high crime, why did they don't mention felony as opposed to misdemeanors? What is misdemeanors? Was that supposed to be just trite offenses, and therefore uh, you could uh, impeach people for drunkenness, like they did in the case of the judge? What is it? Was that the reason for use of the word misdemeanor, high crimes, and misdemeanors? So I'm going to give you an ineffective answer. This is an incomplete answer, Manny. But um, without getting into the Democrats and the Republicans and what the arguments are, it was late into the convention at September 8th. They're going to be leaving in a week or so. They got out of there, I think, on September 17th. And they didn't want to prolong the debate. And sometimes the way you come to an answer is you come up with terminology that everybody can live with and leave it to future generations. They did not give a definition of what a high crime and misdemeanor is. And I'll point out to you that that was, a ter- that was terminology that the British were using. So they, they generally understood what a high crime and misdemeanor is because the, the British were using that as a basis for impeachment. And uh, I would refer you to one of these days we can look at what Blackstone, who's a famous judge, uh, describes what a high crime and misdemeanor is. And uh, I'm not going to tell you who cited Blackstone. And actually, both parties cite the Blackstone. But, uh, you know, th- this is the issue. And language is subject to interpretation. And, uh, you know, you need precedence and you need to understand the perspective. And uh, these, these are the tough questions of constitutional law. And, and the history gives you the background. So I'm going to drop the line if, if Ed is able to still reach you from New York. Uh, but it's always a pleasure talking with everybody. And, I got, uh, yeah, I got you for three more minutes. And are you driving to Kansas City, Kansas now that the, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl? <laughs> Quite a Super Bowl, especially if it was played in Kansas and they said it was played in Miami. I, I, I believe it was played in Kansas. I don't think it was played here because my president said so. So congratulations to Kansas and, you know, Missouri didn't win anything. Okay, my friends, stay free. Thank you for listening to Adam Levinson here on the Statutes and Stories. Uh, uh, let's hope that uh, Bernie wins in, uh, in Iowa and then it's easier to beat him in the general Take care, my friends, and stay free. This is WSQF, Blink Radio 94.5. This is yours truly, Mac on the Rock, and say goodbye to Adam. See you, Adam. Good night, everybody. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. 